In recent days, the uh, movie Narnia has swept our country. How, how many of you have seen the movie? Almost all of you. And uh, the DVD came out this week. How many of you bought the DVD? We did. And um, I think SR, I was talking to you, and you've watched it how many times now? Six times. The movie's based upon a book published by C.S. Lewis in the 1950s entitled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many of you read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? Many of you. This is really old hat to you, right? I'm a few years ago, I remember reading it to Carissa each night before we went to bed, and we enjoyed it so much that we went through all seven books. How many of you read all seven books? Good. Well, we're, we're dwaning a little bit in our movie culture. Well, you all know that the story is based on a broad allegory of the meaning of the death of Christ. The story begins by introducing us to four children who enter into a magical world called Narnia through a magical wardrobe. And upon entering this land, they discover that it's under a wicked spell, the white witch, her spell is terrible, right? It caused the land of Narnia to be always winter and never Christmas, right? And the four children... Of them, one of them proved himself to be a traitor. His name was Edmund, right? Rather than giving his allegiance to Aslan, the Christ figure, he gave his allegiance to the White Witch. As a result, Edmund was rightfully the witch's property. And perhaps you remember that scene when the, the White Witch came into Aslan's camp to claim Edmund, who, was, who had escaped, because he said that he is rightfully mine. And remember, the witch went into this tent and had a discussion with Aslan and made an agreement with him. The agreement was that Aslan would die in Edmund's place, and in doing so, Aslan became Edmund's substitute. Really, that's a great picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it not? When Jesus Christ died on Calvary, he died as a substitute for sinners, just as Aslan died for a substitute for Edmund. Edmund deserved to die for his treason, and so also we deserve to die. But Jesus Christ took the place of those who believe on him. And, and really, that's the main point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this word, substitution. That's what the gospel is all about. All of us have sinned. We deserve to die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ died in our place. He died for us. He died instead of us. Jesus Christ bore the punishment that our sins deserved rather than ourselves bearing the punishment. And that's the good news we proclaim. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. That's what eternity is all about, is that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners. In fact, this truth is all over the Bible. I mean, it just saturates the Bible. Think about the following scriptures with me. Don't even attempt to turn to them. I want you to sit back and kind of listen to the weight of biblical evidence for this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Many of these verses are probably familiar to you because they so summarize everything the Bible talks about. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He gave His life for many. <clears throat> John 10, verse 11. Jesus said, I'm the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. He's laying down His life for the sheep as a substitute. Romans 5, 6, While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died in the place of, instead of, the ungodly. Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He not also freely give us all things? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Christ died in the place of our sins. 
2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for all that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus died and rose again on our behalf. On the behalf of those who believe. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Right? We, he was sin on our behalf. He became sin for us. That's what substitution is. And there are many more. Galatians 1 verse 4 The Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins that He might rescue us from this present evil age. He died for our sins in the place of our sins. Galatians 2.20 The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Jesus gave Himself for me is what Paul says. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. He was cursed in our place. Ephesians 5, verse 2. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The crucifixion of Christ was for us as, a, as an offering, satisfying to God. Ephesians 5:25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. And how did He love the church? How did He demonstrate this love? He gave Himself up for her. He died for the church. He died in the place of the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Christ died for us. Therefore, we don't get wrath, but we get grace. Titus 2.14 Christ Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. He sacrificially gave of Himself for us in our place. Hebrews 2.9 Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. He tasted death for us in the place of us. 1 Peter 2.21 Christ also suffered for you, leaving the example for you to follow in His steps. Jesus Christ suffered for you. He suffered in your place, is what this says. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, the just in place of the unjust, that He might bring us to God. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. He laid down His life in place of us. So why did I go through those verses? Really simple reason. I want to show you that the idea of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ is all over the pages of Scripture. I mean, the meaning of death, the death of Christ is clear. He died as a substitute. He died in the place of sinners. But furthermore... The idea of substitution, the sacrifice of Christ, is all over the verses that we will discover this morning. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Now for those of you who weren't here last week, I announced last week that we are changing our course of study in uh, talking with Gordy Bell. We've come to the agreement that it's best for us to stop our year-long travel through the Bible and... Um, focus more on verse-by-verse -verse exposition as we've done in the past. And uh, so what we've done is for this last week and this week and next week as we anticipate Easter, we're looking upon the, the suffering song of Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53 that Gordy read for us. And then after that, we'll begin a verse-by-verse -verse study of Colossians. It'll be good for us we think about Christ becoming all and preeminent in first place. So we saw last week, so we looked at chapter 52, verses 13 through chapter 53, verse 3, of how accurately it described the life of Christ. How He is one who is exalted, but one also who is humbled, who made Himself known, but was rejected. He grew up without any stately form or majesty and was despised by all of us. And, and that is exactly like what took place. And we'll see in verses 4 through 5 how theologically even the verses here describe so accurately 
what the death of Christ means. And next week we'll see how clearly Isaiah anticipated the resurrection as well. This has been called the Gospel according to Isaiah. And indeed, that's what it is. It takes the, the birth, the life of Jesus, takes it through His death, the theological meaning of it, and even brings through to His resurrection. All these things coming to play. Well, I've entitled my message this morning, He Was a Substitute. He was a substitute. As you look at verses 4-6, through six, you're going to find the, the concept of substitution that occurs many, many, many times in these pages, in these verses. In fact, I counted seven times. Look here in verse 4. He says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore. The griefs that were ours were borne by Him. He was our substitute in that way. Verse 4 again, Our sorrows He carried. The sorrows that were ours were laid on Him. And He carried them rather than us carrying them. He was our substitute. Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. In other words, Jesus was pierced in replacement of us being pierced. Our transgressions deserve that we are pierced, but Jesus was pierced for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our iniquities is what caused Him to be crushed. And Jesus was crushed in our stead, in our place. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. Rather than God chastening us, God chastened our substitute, who was Jesus. Verse 5 again. By His scourging we are healed. It's through His scourging that we ultimately are healed as He died in our place. And verse 6, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The iniquity that should have fallen on us fell on our substitute. And in Isaiah 53, it continues on. We're just going to look at verses 4 through 6, but it continues on. Look at verse 8. Jesus was cut off out of the land of living. Right? He was killed. He was, he, he was destroyed. Why? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The stroke was due upon my people. But God said that instead it went upon Jesus and He was cut off out of the land of the living. We see that in the end of verse 11. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Their iniquities didn't come upon themselves. Their iniquities went upon this servant who bore them in their place. Verse 12, right at the end. He himself bore the sin of many. Notice, the sin of many came upon him even though he was sinless. This concept of substitution is all over Isaiah 53 because it is the Gospel that we proclaim. And my aim this morning is very simple. I want you to be convinced and to know and to be refreshed and to understand that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for sinners. You think you can catch that? I hope I've been clear enough. I hope I've repeated enough. But that's like the one point. Right? So parents, when you're having lunch with your children today, and perhaps, maybe I would suggest you do, is have a conversation with them. Say, oh, what was the sermon about today, guys? And children, what are you going to tell your parents? It was about substitution. You just answer that one word, and maybe you'll get dessert or nice candy or something at, at dinner time. Well, I've got one point for each verse, verses 4 through 6. Here's my first point. He died for the result of sin. Look at verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. This verse anticipates the healing power of Jesus. You know, sin is a great effect upon our lives. Do you know why sickness is in the world? Because of sin, right? And there's a pattern here, kids. I think you might be able to uh, answer this question. Adults too, if you're bright enough, right? Do you know why disease is in the world? It's because of sin. Do you know why grief is in the world? Because of sin, right? Do you know why sorrow is in the world? It's because of sin. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He was dying to remove these effects. I mean, Jesus dealt with these things during His time of stay upon earth. I mean, think with me about the healing ministry of Jesus. 
When he came to the people of Israel, he had great compassion upon those who were sick and diseased and grieving. And on many occasions, large crowds of people came to Jesus, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, and mute. And they laid them down at the feet of Jesus, just waiting for him to heal them. And if you remember, to read through the Gospel accounts of, of Jesus and how He dealt with them, is that all who came to Jesus were healed of their sicknesses. You don't get any sense that people at all would come to Jesus and then be turned away because of lack of power to heal. No, all came. He healed lepers of skin disease. He cast fever away. He cast out demons from the crazed. He gave strength to the legs of the paralytic. He opened the eyes of the blind. He restored withered hands. And in fact, so extensive was his healing ministry that Matthew writes of how Jesus was going through all of Galilee. This is Matthew 4.23. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. Doctors were put out of work. Randy, unemployed. Right? Just, that's what it was with Jesus. In fact, there were times the healing ministry of Jesus was so busy with all the crowds coming to be healed that he and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. Just people upon people upon people coming in. Jesus was healing their diseases and healing their distresses and healing their griefs and healing their sorrows. And that's what Isaiah 53 verse 4 is talking about. He's saying, Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. In Matthew chapter 8 verse 17, Matthew said that the reason why Jesus healed diseases and sickness was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He Himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. You know, this word translated here, grief, gives you the idea of of weakness or sickness or disease. And sorrows is, is perhaps maybe a more general word that talks about distresses, pains. And if there's any difference between these two words, the first one, the grief, speaks more about the physical sufferings, the physical pains, the physical sicknesses, the physical illnesses and disease. But the word sorrow might focus more upon the, the general pain just caused by sin. And and Isaiah here in verse 4 is talking about all the effects as that sin produces is what Jesus came to take away. Our griefs He bore and our sorrows He carried. You know, and uh, the devastation of sin is felt in our bodies. But it goes beyond sickness and illnesses. There's often a great pain that takes place just because we're living in a sinful world with sinful people and a fallen place that the spirit of man within him is felt in the spirit of man untold anguish of soul. And, and oftentimes the, the, the pain of the soul and the spirit will far exceed the pain of the body. I mean, think about King David. He spoke of the sorrow and pain caused by his unconfessed sin. In Psalm 32, he said, when I kept silent about my sin, I would groan all the day long. Psalm 32, he said that his vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And he's describing there a depression. Sin had come upon him, he refused to confess it, and thus he was just depressed. You know what it's like on a summer day when the hot sun comes out and your vitality is sapped and you just kind of lay around, you have no energy for anything? That's called depression. And often it's caused because people won't confess their sin. Or the guilt is so laid upon them and they can't deal with it. That is the pain and the suffering and the sorrows of life. But it doesn't merely come from your own sin. It can come from others. People can cause great sorrow in your heart without ever touching you. Fathers can devastate their children, never allowing them to be good enough to be accepted in their sight. Husbands can devastate wives by speaking down upon them all the time with regularity. Wives can degrade their husbands by constantly nagging and talking with them. As, as if the husband can never be good enough. And those things cause great sorrow in our lives. Words produced by our tongue can light a fire among people that can cause deep wounds. Proverbs 16.28 says this, A slanderer separates intimate friends. 
A slander separates intimate friends. The picture is you got some intimate friends, right? Booze and buddies. And, and they just love each other and, and talk to one another. And then along comes a slanderer and tells one of these friends a lie about this one. And suddenly there's some distance. And, and they don't quite know why. And, and the distance gets further and further. And, and maybe the truth then gets divulged that actually it was a lie that caused this distress in the first place. But sometimes it's never repairable. A slander can separate intimate friends. It's a sorrow of life when relationships are, are fractured. And you can add to these the tragedies that take place all around us, right? Terrorist attacks kill the life of a friend. Hurricane takes the life of a family member. A debilitating illness comes upon a spouse or upon a child. A broken marriage will destroy people's meaning in life many times. To try to find themselves again. And these are what's happening here. The griefs and the sorrows that Jesus Christ bore. Well, enough of the bad news. Let's look at the good news. Jesus Christ bore our griefs. And He carried our sorrows. And His work on the cross will take our sorrows away. In this verse 4, the idea isn't so much that griefs and sorrow came upon Him to fill Him with grief and sorrow. The idea here is about a a, a pack mule or, 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 or someone who gets a load upon their back and Jesus Christ takes the load of our sorrows and takes the load of our griefs upon His back and then He bears them. Not that He endures them Himself, but He, he, he takes them and, and under the weight of them, he, he walks away and carries them away and takes them away. All your sorrows, all your pains, all your distress of life. Can you imagine? Placed on Jesus, walked away, never to be seen again. See, that's the great reality of life in heaven. We worship Him. There'll be a day when all our griefs and all our sorrows are fully wiped away. Perhaps you know this verse. You should know it well. Revelation 21, verse 4. When God comes back to establish His eternal kingdom, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And no longer will there be any death. And no longer will there be any mourning or crying or pain. Because Jesus Christ took it all away. I mean, can you even imagine that? All of our sorrows gone. Our griefs turned into joy. Our broken relationships mended. Our depression never to return. Our guilt wiped out. Can you imagine it? It's true. And even here in verse 4, Isaiah says, For sure it's true. He starts here, Surely our griefs he bore. As surely as we are gathered here this morning, Jesus Christ will remove all the sorrows and all the griefs from our lives someday completely. See, when Jesus died upon the cross, He didn't really just bear all our sin upon the cross alone. He also bore all the results of our sin as well, the effects of our sin. He bore our griefs, He carried our sorrows. And we did this, He did this even when we misjudged Him. Look at the end of verse 4. And see, this is the amazing thing. It's not like we had great affection for Jesus. It's not like that we knew everything was going on. It says, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. When people saw Jesus, they misjudged him and sent him to death. And I just say, how easy is it for us to misjudge people? I was reminded this past week of how I misjudged a member of our congregation. It's been... Uh, Four years now that we've been renting Rockford Christian High School. And four years ago, we were planning and preparing for how it is that we should, you know, set up the facility here and, and, and the, the equipment that we will bring in and, the, you know, setting things up. And I was pleased that Doug Sosnowski volunteered. He says, I'll do it. I said, great, great. And uh, I, I told Doug, shortly before we started worshiping here four years ago, I said, you know what, setting up church is going to be easy for the first few months. I mean, excitement, encouragement, hey, that's easy, but you just wait about a year and it's going to get really hard. Now, I said this because I knew it from personal experience. When we planted a church down at Kishwaukee Bible Church, I was the setup guy. And on Sunday mornings, we had our van packed with stuff and we came to our auditorium. We had auditor We had seats even. So we weren't even setting up seats. We had all this stuff in the van and we took them in and out. And after about a year ago, I had enough. It was really hard. And so, from first-hand experience, I knew this was going to be hard for Doug. And I said, Doug, just, just distribute the load because it's going to be hard. And Doug said, no, it's not going to be the case. If you serve with the right heart, service should never be a burden. 
probably reflects upon my heart of service at Kishwaukee Bible Church. But I, I just let him go. In a year, I'll, he'll see the wisdom of my ways. Well, a year passed, and um, he reminded me of those words. And I reminded him of my words. Just wait, just wait. And uh, a second year passed, and a third year passed, and Doug has been, as you have seen, a one-man set-up crew. Oh, there are some who are helping, especially your children. Aaron, you're being a great help. You can look at me. You're being a great help. I thank you. Right? Keep it up. And um, I've been astonished. I've been amazed. I've been encouraged. I love speaking of, of Doug to others. People find out that we don't have a building at Rock Valley Bible Church, and I'm a pastor, and they say, oh, so you set up? And I say, well, there's this guy in our congregation. He's amazing. He just sets up, and it's almost as if we have a church building from my perspective. Because it's always set up, and it always works. It works flawlessly. I'm not burdened at all. Well, this past week, I wanted to honor Doug. And uh, so my wife and I invited the Sosnowski family to our house, and we had a small party. We called it the Steve Was Wrong Party. <laughs> and uh, just to say that I was, I was wrong, misjudged Doug, I want to have that party be a, a faithful yearly party reminding Doug of our gratefulness to him. And you know what? I, I judged Doug incorrectly. And so also in Jesus' day, many people judge Jesus incorrectly as well. I mean, it says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That was exactly the same thought that came in verse 3 about looking at Jesus, despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. We didn't esteem him. Right? Here's a, a similar thought coming in here. We just despised him. He was stricken of God. He was afflicted. And in fact, even you remember the crowds who saw Jesus hanging on the cross, said to him, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, if you really can do that, well then save yourself. Others said, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Others mocked him and said, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Others said, he's the King of Israel. Well, let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. These abuses came by those who were just passing alongside the road. These abuses came by the, the chief priests and the, the Pharisees who put him to death. These abuses even came from the robbers who were being crucified with him at the very same time, hurling all this abuse in him. And do you know what the fundamental issue was with all of these insults that they gave Jesus? It was this. You are a false prophet, young man. You're false. I mean, if you really are, then save yourself. Certainly you displayed wondrous powers, but what about your powers now? Huh? That's what it was. It was all mocking. Nobody respected him. They could have said easily that he was smitten of God. They knew that anyone who hangs on the tree is cursed. And he's hanging on a tree. He is cursed. He is cursed of God. He is smitten of God. Indeed, the people of Jesus' day, that's how they would have perceived him. Stricken of God and afflicted. And yet, here's the remarkable thing, that even Jesus Christ endured that shame, endured that mocking, so as to die for the results of sin. Well, let's look. Not only did he die for the results of sin, he also died for the healing of sin. Look at verse 5. It says this. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. And these verses well describe the agony of the cross in bitter detail. When Jesus was placed in the cross, He was secured by long Roman spikes that were driven into His hands, and driven deep enough into the wood to secure, whatever, a 200-pound man upon a cross. During the hours of his torture, suspended by these nails in his hand and in his feet, shortly after he died, the Roman soldiers came and, and they pierced his side with a spear, which caused some blood and water to come out of him. As I mentioned last week, hundreds of years before the crucifixion was invented, 
Jesus, or Isaiah wrote that he would be pierced through. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. Before Jesus was placed on the cross, he was taken away by some Roman soldiers who made sport of him. The Bible tells us that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, crushed it upon his head, put a purple robe on him, and mocked him as a king, and they also scourged him. Now, a Roman scourge was a, a stick about a foot, foot and a half long with several strands of cords kind of coming off of them, which would be loose, whip-like, and then weaved into these cords that periodic were, were bits of stone or metal that then they would take, and as they whipped this thing around, would get a lot of speed, and they could lash it on someone's back, and then they could rip it off. And as this came upon his back and it was ripped off, his back would have been lacerated, open sores, only to be hit and struck again. That's what it meant that Jesus was scourged. That's exactly what, what Isaiah prophesied. He was pierced in verse 5. He was scourged in verse 5. He's also crushed. And to be sure, none of Jesus' bones were broken, according to prophecy. But certainly the harsh treatment that Jesus received was a crushing mortal blow to his body. He eventually died by these wounds. Isaiah said that Messiah would be chastened. This is a normal word that you use for being disciplined. Right? And the Romans would often discipline people who committed crimes. Rather than just spending jail time, they would flog them and give them some pain. Let them out. And I think perhaps it's more effective. That's why God tells us to use the rod, not to have timeouts with our children. Because the rod gets their attention. Timeout, though sometimes helpful, I don't think is a God-ordained way to discipline children. And also, likewise here, the, the flogging was the way that the Romans punished the people who committed crimes. So Jesus was pierced. He was crushed. He was chastened or disciplined. He was scourged. But what's interesting about this verse 5 is that Isaiah doesn't merely tell us what would happen to Jesus. He, he tells us what would happen, and then he interprets what would happen to him. Look what it says. He says he was pierced through for our transgressions, right? There was a, a substitution taking place there. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our iniquities is what crushed him. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. It's our well-being of why he was chastened. By a scourging, we are healed. These first two phrases speak about the suffering of Jesus was for the bad things that we have done. And then the second two phrases speak about the good thing that Jesus came, did, which came to us. Right? The first two are negative, and the second two are positive. The first two speak of the wrong that we've done to cause Jesus to suffer, and the second two speak about the suf how the suffering that came upon Jesus was ultimately for our good. And so here we see... Even double substitution. Not only did Jesus just die in our place, but he kind of switched places with us. Right? You've seen the, the Prince and the Pauper? Disney film? It's a, a rich king, a poor peasant. Switch places. And so everything that was good here, right, was, you know, got there. Everything was bad. And they, they just switched places. They swapped. That's what Jesus did. Everything good. We received everything bad. He received. It's a, a double substitution. It's really told about in the story of uh, Charles Dickens wrote a novel called A Tale of Two Cities. How many of you read this book? Some of you, great, great. I kind of read the Cliff Notes version, so I didn't read everything. But I, I know enough to say that it was about a story of London and Paris in the 1700s. Two men come to play an important role in the story. Their names are Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton. These two men were different as different can be. Charles Darnay was a well-known and well-respected teacher. A man of dignity, of high standing among all the people. But Sidney Carton, on the other hand, was neither well-known nor respected. Though he was very bright and intelligent, he was a drunkard who wasted his life in sinful living. Two different people, two different standings in society. But they did have several things in common. One thing they had in common is they looked very close to be exactly alike. They could have passed as identical twins. And secondly, they're in love with the same woman, Lucy Manette, or Manet, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. 
This woman, Lucy, they're both in love with her. And Sidney Carton knew that he had no opportunity to gain and to win her love because he was a slothful drunkard. His own sinful living and poor reputation gave him no chance that she would ever love him. But he still loved her, and one day he had an opportunity to speak to Lucy alone. And on that day, he told her, he said that he was unworthy of her love for him, but that his own love for her was great. And he said that he would willingly lay down his life for her. And with that, Sidney Carton kind of leaves the story. The story unfolds. Lucy and Charles Darnay were united in holy matrimony. Political tensions continued to arise between France and England. And uh, Charles Darnay heard about some happenings in Paris, actually traveled to Paris, and was captured by the French, thrown into a tower prison where he was set for a day of trial. After a trial, Charles was found guilty of espionage, sent back to the prison where he awaited death by the guillotine at 3 o'clock the next day. Well, Sidney Carton had also traveled to France as well. He came to Paris. He knew what was happening, and he came up with a plan to show his love for Lucy. Shortly before the execution, he sent a note to a friend of Lucy, Mr. Laurie, saying, Have a coach ready to leave for Paris at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Tell Lucy of the danger that she, her father, and her child are in, and that she must go. Tell her that this was her husband's final wish. Be in the coach with them all. Keep a place for me. When I arrive, you drive away and make sure you have all the papers with you to take us to passage to England. And no matter what happens, don't change your plans. Just set that up on the back end. Then he came to visit Charles in the prison. Up in the tower somehow he had got up there and wanted to visit Charles. And he he said to Charles, I come with a request from Lucy. There's no time to explain. Take off your jacket. Take off your tie. Take off your boots and put on mine. Give me the ribbon from your hair and you shake your hair loose like mine. Right? In other words, they wanted to swap places. Initially, Darnay refused the plan, but Sidney was insistent. He said, hey, you need to do this. And so they exchanged clothes. And at Sidney Carton's request, then Charles sat down and, and wrote a note. said this, If you remember the words that passed between us long ago, you will understand what I am doing. I'm thankful to get the chance to prove those words I said to you so long ago that I would lay down my life for you. I do it now eagerly, and you are to have no grief and no regret. At this point, Sidney Carton took some ether and a cloth and drugged Charles Darnay so he was out cold. Then he, he stuffed the paper inside Darnay's coat and then called for the guard and said, Guard, please come get my visitor. He is ill. He told him to take him to Mr. Lorry, who's waiting there for a coach. Shortly thereafter, the clock struck three. The guards entered the prison tower and took away Sidney Carton, away to be executed as Charles Darnay. Darnay, still unconscious, then was brought to Mr. Lorry's carriage. He was taken safely out of Paris en route back to England. And you can only imagine the time when um, Charles would come to his senses, find himself riding safely home to England rather than being guillotined, having his head cut off. And at some point he wished, oh, oh, there's this note. And he would have been confused about what exactly this note meant. And perhaps he read it with his lovely wife, Lucy, and said, do you know what this means? And she would clearly understand that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. And that's exactly what Sidney Carton did. He laid down his life out of love for this woman who he would never be worthy of. You know, and that's what Jesus did when he died upon the cross. He died in our place. He died instead of us. And why? It's only because of his love, his great grace, his great kindness to us. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
I mean, that, that's, that's the only explanation of why this substitution would take place. Because of His great love and grace and kindness. Right? And, and even more so is even this double substitution that took place about how we get His good. You know, He took our bad. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it as well as any verse in all the Bible. It says that God made Jesus who knew no sin. Right? He was sinless. He became sin on our behalf. So that we who are sinful might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Just marvelous how this double substitution works itself out. Jesus received the punishment that our sins deserve. And we receive the righteousness that only Jesus deserved as well. Well, Jesus died for the healing of sin. That's what verse 5 is talking about. Finally, verse 6 talking about how Jesus died for the forgiveness of sin. This is the Gospel in and of itself. Verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Bad news and then the good news. The bad news in the first two phrases. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The good news is found in the last two verses, but the Lord phrases, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It's good news, bad news. The bad news is we're like straying animals. We're like straying sheep. We've gone astray from the glory of God. We've not sought for Him and His righteousness. We've chosen our own way instead. And when sheep wander off and follow their own ways, you know, they're in danger. You just think about the danger that they encounter. There's, there's dangers from falling off a cliff. There's dangers from being stuck in a ravine. There's dangers from being found in a parched land where there's nothing to eat. There's dangers from having nothing to drink. There's dangers from wolves and coyotes and bears and lions. There's dangers of being exposed to the hot sun. There's dangers to being exposed to the freezing rain. And when sheep wander off, they don't wander off into good paths. Often they wander off into the paths of doom. And the parallel of sheep comes over to us. When we choose our own path, do you know that's often the path of doom? Proverbs 16, verse 25 says, There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of... Remember what it says? End is the way of death. It looks good. It looks right, just like that sheep. Oh, this looks good. But its end is the way of death. That's the way that looks right to a man. The path that we often walk down if we aren't guided is the path of death. A child left to his own way brings shame to his mother. Why? Because he travels a bad path. And it's the path, quite frankly, that all of us have traveled. We've all traveled the path away from God. Because left to our own way, that's the path we travel. You see this oftentimes when kids get out of their homes. They've been forced to go one way and they get out of their homes and they, phew, they go the wrong path because now they have freedom. You know, I was working with my daughter yesterday talking with her about probabilities. We talked about the probability that you flip a coin and it's going to show up heads. What's the probability of that? About half. <coughs> we talked about <coughs> the probability of having a boy or a girl. It's about half. We talked about the probability you roll a dice. What's the probability will you roll a one? About one-sixth, right? What's the probability you roll a two? About one-sixth, right? Straightforward. But, you know, should I have talked with her yesterday about the probability of walking the right path of life? What kind of probability is it that we all walk the right path of life? Not so good. Look what it says here. All of us have gone astray. We've turned to our own ways, Right? The odds are bad because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none of us who've walked the right path. There's none of us who have fully reached the glory of God. We're like sheep on a cliff that needs to be rescued. In the physical realm, we understand what a shepherd must do, right? He must go and find the lost sheep. <clears throat> Once he found the sheep, he must bring the sheep to safe, safety in, in the good pastures where there are no cliffs to fall down 
There's plenty of grass to eat. There's plenty of water to drink. There's ample protection. Shade from the trees to protect from the hot sun or caves to protect from the freezing snow and rain that comes. A place of protection where the shepherd can watch for the dangers. And the spiritual realm, listen, it's really, it's much the same. The shepherd needs to go to find the sheep and once found the sheep needs to be brought safely into the paths of God. Where there's no danger. Where there's protection from the elements. Where there's good things to eat. Good things to drink. Psalm 23 says it, great. I trust these words are familiar to you. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, right? He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. It's interesting, you can take all these and parallel them with sheep. Making them lie down in green pastures, leading beside quiet waters. Guiding me in the path of righteousness. But the psalmist adds one more thing that's really not true of sheep. He restores my soul. He restores my soul and then He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Because when you think about things spiritually, bringing us back, the Lord needs to first restore our soul and then lead us into the path of righteousness. And that's what Isaiah chapter 56, 53, verse 6 is talking about. It's talking about how He restores the soul because we have taken the wrong path and sinned against the Holy God. We have broken His law. We come back to God as a lawbreaker. And that needs to be dealt with. We need to deal with the laws that have been broken. And the way to deal with it isn't to make up for the good by just simply being on the right path. The sheep can do that. The sheep can just get back and it's on the right path. Okay, everything's fine. But for us, that's not the case. We need to deal with our sin. We need to deal with our iniquity. We need atonement for our sin. According to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And that's where the end of verse 6 comes in. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And, And again, you see this idea of substitution. It's the iniquity that should fall on us for going the wrong way. That should have fallen upon us, but the iniquity falls on Him. And you know what our duty is? Simply to believe that message. And if you believe this morning and trust in Christ, if you see and say, I'm not righteous, I've gone the wrong way, God. I need iniquity to fall on Jesus and not to fall on me. And you trust God for that, then indeed the iniquity has fallen upon Him. But if you're not embracing Christ, if Christ is far from you, you're not believing Him, trusting Him, then that iniquity is landing on you. And you will pay that punishment someday. But believe and trust in Him and the iniquity has landed on Christ. Peter put it this way, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. That's the Gospel. That is our hope. That Jesus Christ became our substitute and thereby He provided a way in which sins may be forgiven. (laughs) He provided a way in which then He'd ultimately bring glory unto Himself. I love the passage in John 17 where Jesus says, I long for you to go to be with me to see my glory. That's ultimately why He does this. God accomplishes redemption ultimately for the glory of Christ. Just then we are redeemed to praise Him and to give great worship and adoration to Him. Because the Father seeks worshipers. That's why He does it. Well, these verses here are really the, the gospel according to Isaiah is this suffering song and even verses 4 through 6 are the gospel of substitution and verse 6 even in a greater focus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, so great is this reality that the church for all time has celebrated the Lord's Supper as the memorial of what Christ actually accomplished for us upon the cross. And as we've done all the way through Lent, this is our last Sunday, we've done it for like the last fifth Sundays, I think, we're going to celebrate again the Lord's Supper, again and again and again, as a church, reminding us of the, the crucifixion of Christ. We think about 
coming up to Good Friday here. We think about everything that took place in the death of Christ. It's been a good reminder for us this Lenten season. We won't next week because we'll celebrate His resurrection. But today again, we celebrate the death of Jesus Christ. Because in Him is where our redemption is found. It's when Jesus died, our griefs were born. Right? When Jesus died, our sorrows were carried. When Jesus died, our transgressions were taken away. When Jesus died, our iniquities were crushed in Him rather than being crushed in us. When Jesus died, it was for our well-being. It was for our good. It's for our healing that He was scourged. So I don't think I need to really say much in terms of preparing you for the Lord's Supper other than this. Let's just say, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, boy, celebrate the supper. But if you're not, let the supper go by. Because it's not for you. It's for those who want to proclaim to everybody that I love Jesus and I am believing and trusting in the sacrifice that He took upon His body for my sin. So let me pray together. Oh Lord, we think of the, the great sacrifice of Christ. And all we can say is thank you. The only way we can respond is in love towards you. All that we can sing is praise to you. I think of the the verse I read earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Lord, this is the reality when we come to embrace and understand and grasp that you died for us, we have no other response but to turn around and to live for you. They who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for you. And sometimes it means dying. <clears throat> Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. If you don't take up your cross, you're not worthy of me. That's what Jesus said. He calls us to a life of suffering. They hated your master, so also will they hate you. God, so as we live for you, I pray that you'd show us a willingness to die for you. God, to give up our possessions to you. God, to hate father and mother and brother and sister in comparison with you. To forsake all, because that's what you require. You gave your all, and you require of us, by faith, to forsake our all. And I thank you that your justification comes without works, without merit, without anything of our own. Of our own, it's all by grace, through faith. And so, Lord, even as we think of celebrating this supper, I pray that it will be celebrated with great joy and great anticipation to realize of just the assurance we have that surely our griefs He Himself bore. What confidence we have before You. And so, God, may You. Dwell among us now. Commune with us, even in a special way. God, may your presence be among us to stir our our dead hearts to be alive. To stir our cold hearts to be fiery hot. The gospel of Christ. God, so may you be magnified and worshipped and adored as we simply in obedience to you celebrate this supper that you told us to do 2,000 years ago. And we'll continue to do until the Lord Jesus returns.